So those early Christians who wrote that creed and lived it out in so many ways, they wanted to make something absolutely clear. And what they wanted to make clear was that Jesus didn't just die on a cross and that Jesus didn't just rise from the dead, but that Jesus also ascended into heaven. Now, as soon as I say that, my fear is that it is getting mistranslated simply because I have seen it mistranslated so many times and because I have mistranslated it so many times in my own life. False assumptions is what I'm talking about here of what it means. So let me set the record straight. This is not what they're saying. That when Jesus died, that he rose like metaphorically and that his spirit went to be in heaven. They're not saying that Jesus' body is in the ground somewhere and that the essence of who he is finally made its way into the the, the pearly gates of heaven somehow where many of us hope to go in some capacity. It's not what it's saying at all. Because when they say that Jesus rose from the dead, what they mean is that he rose from the dead. That means like a dead person came back to life. That means you could touch him. That means you could talk to him. That means he was walking the earth. And for 40 days, what you saw Jesus do after he rose from the dead was screw with his disciples. He would just kind of like show up. Hey guys, guess what? I'm back. And he would teach them. And they would kind of doubt it. They'd go, oh my gosh, it has to be a ghost. And they'd go, okay, Put your hands right here. Feel the wounds. Put your hand right there. Feel the wounds. Now, I don't know about you, but in my ghost sightings, I have yet to be able to feel the physical corporeal wounds or flesh of that spiritual being. How about you? He was back. He was walking along the Sea of Galilee. His disciples were out fishing. They were kind of feeling bad because, like, you know, when he got nailed to the cross, they all, like, kind of ditched him over there, and like, like, how do you face someone after you're kind of like complicit in their death, and then like, oh, now I just can't like hide for it, and it's done, like they actually come back and confront me on it. Like, like, like what do you do in that kind of situation? And then, and then what do you especially do when that person is like strong enough to beat death, and now I kind of have to have a face-to-face with you going, oh yeah, I kind of like just abandoned you there, didn't I? Awkward conversation, let me tell you. And there they are out fishing again. And Jesus calls out to them from the seashore. And they realize who he is. And so one of his disciples actually puts on his coat to jump into the water to swim to him. Because your mind just isn't like, right? Thinking straight when you witness something like that. And what does Jesus do? Well, he does the most natural thing any human being is going to do when they rise from the dead. They said, let's have breakfast. And so he's got a fire there cooking on the beach and he takes some of the fish that they catch and they start eating like fish together. And I don't know about you, I would have had pancakes and bacon. But he was Jewish, so the bacon thing was kind of over there and so they went the fish route. Now I've yet to see a ghost eat fish. I've yet to see a spiritual being eat anything at all. Mind you. I mean, you saw Ghostbusters, right? Remember that green slob, like Slimer or whatever, and he's piling the hot dogs in? They're just popping right out, you know? I mean, there's nothing happening there. Jesus is enjoying it. He's going, nah, he needs a little more salt, right? He's, he's digesting it. He is human. 
He came back from the dead. So please hear this. Oh my gosh, please hear this. When it says that Jesus ascended into heaven, we are not talking about some soul going to be with Jesus while a body is rotten in the ground. No, he's back, risen from the dead, and for 40 days showed himself, shared life, taught his disciples, but after 40 days... This is what happened. From Acts chapter 1. Luke writes, after his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing signs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Can you note that just for a minute? He spoke about the kingdom of God. That's going to get significant a little bit later this morning. What did you note? Okay, let me say it again. Note this, the kingdom of God. He spoke to them about the kingdom of God. That's going to get significant a little bit later this morning. Can you, can you note that here today? Okay, what are you going to note? Yeah, all right, all right. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem. But wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days, you're going to get baptized with the Holy Spirit. You know what that means? Heaven's floodgates are going to open. The Holy Spirit is going to be poured out on you like one of those giant buckets at a water park. You are going to be deluged in the Holy Spirit, I like the word deluge. It's a good word. Would you agree? You are going to be deluged in the Holy Spirit baptized in them. You're going to be just immersed. So when they met together, they asked him, so Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, "Eh, it's not for you to know about that. The times or dates the father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, in McHenry, in Crystal Lake, in Woodstock, and even you Wisconsin freaks who come all the way down south of the border, even to the ends of the earth. Here's what happens next. After he said this, He was taken up before their very eyes. Which way is up? Went that way. Before their very eyes, and a cloud hid them, hid him from their sight. Now, let me ask you. You're there. You're having a conversation with someone who just had breakfast, who came back from the dead, and then before you know it, they're like, just wait a minute, he's taller. No, wait a minute, he's not. Wait, why is he four feet off the ground? Wait a minute, why is he eight feet off the ground? Wait, why is he 150 feet off the ground? Wait, why is he 500 feet off the ground? What would be your natural response? I'll tell you mine. You? Okay, good, because if there's any of you here going, all right, well, you, you know, I mean, just like, come on, don't miss out on life, right? 
Ah, you look up. What is going on here? A, a dude starts going up. You look up. Well, God's ready for that kind of thing. They were looking up intently into the sky as he was going. When suddenly, two men dressed in white stood beside them. I'm looking up. Where'd you come from? Men of Galilee, they said. Why do you stand here looking into the sky? Now, now I'm sorry. Sometimes angels say really stupid things. They show up. Do not be afraid. Someone is literally like going up into the sky. Why are you looking into the sky? Oh, I don't know. I was stargazing. I was bird watching this morning. This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. And so these early Christians who wrote that creed wanted to impress the importance of this on you and future generations. And so they penned this line. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. What is going on? I don't mean mechanically. I don't mean what is going on while he went up and a cloud hit him and he's going to come back. No, no, no. What of substance is going on? What is the importance of what those disciples witnessed? And it's simply this. That Jesus went up to take heaven's throne from where he will rule the universe. Let me say it again. The importance of this line is not simply a cool piece of historic trivia that this is just what happened. It is far more significant. It is Jesus ascending to the throne room. It is Jesus going up to where the throne of the universe is placed to take his rightful seat from where he will rule the universe. You need to think far less of something like a ghost going up to heaven and far more of something like this. Superman taking off. He's physical. He's real. And I know you're saying he's fictional. Well, that's where it breaks down. You get the concept. You need to think this. Neo, back from the dead, coming off the matrix in victory at the end. Or if this comes closer to home and captures the image better, Simba, after defeating Scar, ascending pride rock to give that roar that establishes his authority and his right to rule to say, I am the lion king. Jesus is ascending into heaven to say, I am the lion of the tribe of Judah king. I am the one who is now in control. 
of the universe. And I think to many non-Christians, and maybe Christians alike, that that sounds really weird. Because I think that the prevailing thought pattern today, the cultural assumption we have today, the secular worldview that is so a part of our lives today, and which holds so much attraction, wisdom, even common sense about it is simply this, that nobody is ruling the universe. There are simply principles that are predictable that describe how the universe works. And so any thought of calling out for intervention, it's just a fool's hope. Any thought that there is someone who is behind the scenes, who knows me and the intricacies of how it works, is kind of beyond our experience. Anything that we hope for or think of is a miracle, is nothing more than something embedded into the fiber of the universe that we just haven't figured out how to explain yet. And so when they hear, or when you hear, that wait, you Christians think that there's some guy up in the sky who's ruling it all? Who knows what's going on and behind all things that we can turn to? That's, that's what you think? Yeah. Yeah, it is. We think that Jesus ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty as a rightful king on the rightful throne, ruling this universe. I love what Psalm 103 says, it's really become one of my favorite psalms. And near the end, it has this line. Yahweh has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. What the Apostles' Creed is saying is that Jesus has established, has ascended to heaven and his kingdom rules over all. My experience is most Christians know the language, but most Christians don't live the significance. Guys, this is what the Gospels are about. Ask the average Christian on the street, ask yourself, what are the Gospels about? You're going to get an answer like this. It's a biography of Jesus or it's about the cross. Well, certainly it is a biography of Jesus and the cross is the pinnacle pot, the pinnacle plot point, say that 10 times really fast. But it's about something more central. If you want to know what the Gospels are about, it's basically this. That in Christ, the kingdom of God has come. Remember what I told you to kind of lodge earlier? Can you bring it back to the front burner now? The kingdom of God is what the Gospels are about. Because you see what Jesus is doing in the Gospels parallels in many ways that, that, that great Old Testament story of King David. When you turn to 1 Samuel and you start reading the story of King David, what you are reading is about someone born under someone else's kingship. He's come into this world, he's meek and forgotten. He's relatively unknown outside of his family 
and even among his family, judged arguably as the least of these. The story of 1 Samuel is the story of God's spirit upon David. And David doing these heroic, amazing, dare I say even miraculous things. Killing giants like Goliath. Becoming the commander of the king's forces. Establishing the kingship and its reign. Met with resistance by those who should be proclaiming him and accepting him. And not until 2 Samuel do you see Jesus, or do you see David establishing his throne. This is the story of the Gospels. It's Jesus born into this world in relative obscurity, unknown for most of his life, anointed by the Spirit of God, doing more miraculous things. Maybe not slaying giants like Goliath, but driving demons out, walking on water, healing the sick. What is he doing? He's bringing the kingdom of God into enemy territory. He is driving out the ruling powers that be, these powers of darkness looking to infect and steal and kill and destroy. He's establishing his throne. And when the victory is won over the reigning ruler, he goes up to take the throne that's rightfully is. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. This is kingship language. Watch anything, anything about kings. From BBC and the crown to Black Panther to Lion King. Have you ever noticed how thrones are always up? They're always raised. You always walk up to it. No one like digs a hole and puts a throne in the ground and goes rule from down there. It's never equal because what does it symbolize? You are above me. You survey all. All that your eye sees is in my domain. And where is Jesus seated? Pretty dang high. Would you agree? What are they saying? He's the king. He's taken the throne. This universe is now his and under his control. And all he surveys belongs to him. And what he is doing now is establishing his administration. Establishing his kingdom. Bringing his rule to the furthest extents of this universe. I love how 1 Corinthians puts this. Let me just read a cool excerpt to you out of chapter 15, where Paul proclaims, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die in Christ, all will be made alive. But each... In his own turn, Christ the firstfruits, and when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come. When he does what? Hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. Wait a minute, did you catch that? Isn't that weird? 
When the end comes, Jesus is going to hand over the kingdom to God the Father, which if you're tracking with me should lead you to ask the question, who is ruling the kingdom now? He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. That's who. And what, Jesus, what, what business is Jesus in as we speak right now? Did you catch it? Destroying all dominion, authority, and power that seeks to plague this world and infect it in darkness and suffering. Jesus is about the work of bringing the goodness of his kingdom that he sampled before he ascended and bringing it to the furthest reaches of the globe. After which it says this, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Is death still here? Is death still a reality? Then Jesus is still working because the final enemy hasn't been defeated yet. Not completely, not eradicated, shall we say. And death has no part in God's kingdom. No, not one. Because the one who was suffered and buried rose from the dead and is now ascended into heaven and seated at the right hand of God until death itself has become completely undone. That's the kind of king I want in my life. How about you? There have been some kings in this world, some next level kings. But they all got one thing in common. They've died. This king too. But unlike every other king came back, more powerful than death itself, that's the kind of king I want, bringing life to the full bent on an administration of life to the full for me and for you. This is what this creed is proclaiming. This is what the Christian faith is about. This is what the Gospels are leaning into. This is what the New Testament writers sink their teeth into. And this is what Christian life is meant to be today. Living with a perspective, living with a point of view of not just floating through a random universe, but under the kingship and lordship of the master of death himself. And what's weird to me, what's weird about this idea to me is that I think a lot of Christians know the language. And I think a lot of Christians even nod their heads in assent but how much of us are actually living like it's true? What would it look like to live this way as though it were true? Oh my gosh, there is so much in my soul 
that I could gush on in relation to this. I've got to boil it down. I hate that. I've got to leave you with just some taste tests. A simple few. Let me give you five and let me do it kind of as fast as I can, which really isn't that fast. It means hope and security. It means that no matter what I face in this world, there is one greater that I can turn to no matter what. And no matter what I suffer through in this world, there is one who is bigger than it, who can make it go away, and that I can call out to, cry out to, lean into, and find strength and hope within no matter what I face. I think of those early Christians who went to the arena being fed to lions, knowing that those lions had nothing on them. Because even if they were devoured, there is one who beat death and his kingdom's coming because he's seated on the throne and he said he went up and he's coming again are you with me there is nothing I can find that compares to a hope and a security like that it means this allegiance and loyalty Living different in my perspective and persuasion towards him with absolute allegiance and loyalty, not as a friend, but as my king. Knowing Jesus as a friend is one of the most powerful things you can experience. It is intimate. It is close. And he thinks about you as a brother or a sister. But make make no mistake. He's also my king. Which means when I see him, it's not just this. That what I owe him is this. And what if I was to live my life in such a way that my life was given to him with complete allegiance and loyalty when people snicker about him and I don't want to stand out and I hide my loyalty to him. When I seek loyalties to other powers that bring me something in the moment or a sense of fitting in, what does it look like to give my allegiance first and foremost to him? This is what faith is. Faith is not believing that he exists. Faith is not believing that he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. Even the demons believe that. And shudder, no, faith is something more. It's allegiance to the one of whom it's true, what would it look like for you to live with absolute devotion and allegiance to the one who's on the throne? Brings me to three, a life of service. What if instead of looking at my life as though it is my own, I see my life as something worth giving to him? Every king has the right to draft, to conscript. Are are you with me? What does it look like to live my life in such a way to say that I am under your authority? We are not equals. I am not autonomous. You gave everything for me and so I give everything to you. What does it look like? to do everything with the perspective saying, I do this for the king. I do this for him. I do this for you. There's a great passage in Colossians chapter three. 
It is utterly worth memorizing, which is why I will read it to you this morning. It's Colossians 3, 23. Let me read this to you today. Here's what it says. Here's what it says. By the way, I should say this as I set it up. As I do set this up here this morning, Paul is writing this to slaves. I don't mean metaphorical slaves. I don't mean like Christian cutesy phrases like, oh, we're slaves of Christ, we're servants of Christ. No, I mean like real life, flesh and blood, first century Roman slaves. And he says this, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. Because in this world, there will be many people that demand things of you, many people who will exercise power over you, many people for whom it seems that you are working for. Can you see through it? Can you see past it? Can you give your life in such a way that you are not working for them, you are working for him? When you come to that place, you start to realize more deeply what it means to serve a king, to serve a king. The honor to serve a king that the most lowly of, the most lowly of you, the most humble of you, that the king of the universe has come. Serve me. If you do not see that as the highest of honors, the highest of accolades and praise you are missing, the essence of what that passage is saying here today. Which leads me to number four. If my life is the king's, my stuff is the king's. To look at everything that I am, everything that I own, is ultimately belonging to him. That I am nothing more than a manager on behalf of the king for what he has entrusted me. It is his. This land is not my land. This land is his. This home is not my home. This home is his. This account is not my account. This account is his. These possessions are not my possessions. These possessions are his. All of it belongs to you. Oh Lord, may I handle it wisely. May I handle it in such a way that brings glory and honor to you and your kingdom. Which leads me to this, tithing. It's an ancient Christian practice. It's actually an ancient Jewish practice. The idea of taking what you earn, giving 10%, that's what a tithe means. It doesn't mean an offering. It means giving 10%. It means giving 10% to the Lord. Well, I don't know how to really put it in the Lord's direct hands, I'll tell you this, I don't know how to put my tax in the government's direct hands either. I just kind of write a check and hope the mail gets it there, right? I don't even do that half the time. It just kind of disappears from my paycheck. You know what I mean? So many people look at the gifts that they give to the Lord's work and to his kingdom as acts of generosity. Can I let you in on a secret? It ain't generous to give someone back what belongs to them. Which of you would dare not pay the tribute due 
to the IRS. Well, some of you do. My wife's an accountant, I know, right? (laughs) You're tracking with me, aren't you? Why do we think that when we give to the Lord, that when you give to church or, or the causes of God's kingdom in this world, that somehow, what a generous person I am. I owe you this. And you know what Jesus does? He lets a lot of us cheat on our taxes. And unlike the IRS, he doesn't seize your house. He doesn't freeze your account. No, it's not the kind of king he is. He's patient. He's gentle. Hoping you come around to see who he is and what you owe him. It kind of changes things, doesn't it? To start to view Jesus as a king. Not just in speech, but in action. He ascended into heaven and sits at the hand of God, the Father Almighty, the right one at that. Ruling this universe on behalf of his Father with incredible blessing and benefit. For me and for you. My prayer, my hope, my self-reflection, even after preparing this, is Lord, how do I live in such a way that magnifies your kingship more every day? How about you? How do you live in such a way that it doesn't just proclaim Jesus as king, it shows it? Ah, man, chase that down. Live and breathe that he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty.